A Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon. Episode 4. In our last episode, we learned about the case Sophie Brownlee has received in her first week as a new lawyer. This case that has shocked her so, involving the death of a young girl in Cedar City. These shocking pictures that she looked at in her first week at the law firm. We also know who the young girl is. She is Madeline Ruth Johnson, which now shows us how these two stories are intersecting Maddie Johnson and our young lawyer, Sophie Brownlee. The clients have hired the law firm, Sophie and her boss, to do one thing, not to try and get money for them, but to talk the medical examiner in Utah into changing the death certificate of their daughter to not read suicide, but homicide. They don't believe she killed herself, and that is what she's going to try to do. And now, A Gentle Thief, Episode 4. December 26, 1983. Maddie Johnson lived in a house set armchair style near the mouth of the canyon outside Cedar City, Utah. Her father bought her the property as an early graduation present from Southern Utah University. She had been hoping for a trip to Europe, but she got ground under her feet instead. The house was large, too large for a single woman in her early 20s, or at least that's what Maddie said when she downplayed her father's generosity. Maddie felt too young to own this house, too young and too small. She was just under 5'4", but strong for her slight build. Her arms and legs were tight with strength and pent-up energy. She had the body of an angry dancer. Maddie didn't think of herself as a homeowner, much less a landlord, but she was both. She also owned the smaller house at the mouth of the drive to her property. The drive was a gravel-paved road about 100 yards long named Red Rock Drive, a road that some people who figured out they were lost turned around in. The two homes had been offered as a package deal to her father, and he always liked to have more than enough, whether it was pizza or property, so he bought them both. Maddie rented that house to a young guy named Junior Kemmler. Actually, she wasn't sure how old he was. He had deep crow's feet around his eyes and the evenness of a more mature man, but his skin was taut and tan, and his cedar-high redman jacket seemed only a couple years old. Junior was tall, 6'4", with yellow-blonde hair that had never been styled. His jaw was strong, and his ears were prominent. They would stick out after he had his once-a-year haircut. Junior was a handyman, a carpenter really, who worked on homes and businesses, building cabinets, installing them, fixing broken stairs, whatever needed doing. He had been renting that house from the former owners when Maddie moved in. He introduced himself to her back then and told her he was around if she needed help with anything, plumbing, electrical, whatever. He explained that he had known the owners before they moved to Minnesota. He played basketball with their twins. Morning, Maddie huffed out of breath as she walked by Junior's place on her way home from her run. He was just standing in his doorway that Sunday morning, seeming to take in the day. Hey, he said back. 
His reply would have seemed cold were it not for the smile that accompanied it. How far did you go? Six miles, I hope, but it might have only been four. Why don't you wear that pedometer thing you got for Christmas? Junior asked. I can't figure it out. She was still breathing heavily and grateful to be back home. Besides, I don't really care. Well, if you ever do, want to use it, that is, bring it on by, and I'll take a look at it. Maddie nodded. Is Beth awake yet? She asked, hoping the answer was no. Beth Lauren was Junior's girlfriend and had all of his qualities in reverse. She didn't live with Junior, at least Maddie didn't think she did, but her Mazda was in his driveway that morning. Beth looked a little older than Junior, maybe a lot older, and had the demeanor of someone who is tired of waiting around. Nah, she's not here. Just left her car here when she went out with the girls last night. My idea of a Christmas night at home wasn't doing it for her, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry, Maddie said, and meant. She couldn't imagine preferring hanging out with some loudmouth girls over being with someone as great as Junior, on Christmas night, no less. Well, have a good one, Maddie added absently, and turned to head up the drive to her house. She couldn't think of anything else to say. Yeah, you too. Junior waved. Beth didn't deserve him. Before she had made it ten yards, he considered calling out and asking her to breakfast or something. She'd probably just say she was busy reading or working on something for her students, and then Beth would probably show up and accuse him of showing too much interest in Maddie, and that would likely lead to his having to spend the day out in the garage sharpening tools or wondering what he was doing with his life. Better to go back inside and pour another cup and stop thinking about it. Besides, Junior wasn't sure if Maddie was still seeing what's-his-name. She had been so hot and cold with that guy. Junior hadn't noticed what's-his-name's Jeep on Christmas yesterday, and he knew about their big fight the week before, so he figured they might be over. But you never knew with Maddie. Maddie had been married when Junior first met her to a guy named Robert, an unlikely pair, he thought at first, but that was before Junior got to know him. Robert was a lot older than Maddie, maybe twice as old, but somehow it worked for them, at least until it didn't. Robert was one of those guys who didn't like to try his hand at fixing things around the house. Instead, he just called Junior. Hey, Junior, that upstairs toilet is running again. Can you come over and take a look? Sure, would always be the answer. Con. That was the new one's name, the dark-haired, soft-looking guy Maddie had been dating since she and Robert split up. Junior would often see his Jeep parked out in front of the bright pink house outside of town that was home to four of Cedar City's five radio stations. Junior didn't like that guy, and he didn't like that pink building. One weekend and a couple of gallons of exterior paint could take care of that eyesore. Maddie was missing Robert a little that morning. She looked around the living room and felt grateful she didn't have to take Christmas decorations down. She had decided not to get them out this year. The first Christmas after a divorce feels like it shouldn't be celebrated. Besides, she didn't have many ornaments anyway. Most of the ones they put out the year before had been Robert's. 
He had a great collection of hand-crocheted stockings and Christmas mugs and even special little ornaments that reminded him of his daughter, now grown, and his nieces and nephews, nearly grown as well. Maddie had been surprised at the tenderness of his feeling about the ornaments, how readily he had agreed to lug the boxes out of the garage. The only ornament Maddie had put out this year for herself was a little Christmas tree music box that played a tinkly, oh, Christmas tree. It had sat on the coffee table in her living room every Christmas when she was a child. Maddie had not been back to Pennsylvania for the holiday for two years since she took Robert back to meet her parents. When Maddie thought of Robert Abel, her ex-husband, who did not like to be called Bob, she pictured his graying, untrimmed beard, his deep-set dark eyes, and his reading. He would never leave the house without a book, even just to go for a walk, although he would put it aside readily if you struck up a conversation. His marriage to Maddie was his third. He was almost 20 years her senior, 40 when they married to her 21. His second ex-wife, the more bitter of the two, had asked him if he enjoyed having another daughter to take care of. Very funny, he told her, then asked how Amy, their daughter, was doing. He and Maddie had a relationship of extremes, intense love and intelligence and intimacy, coupled with severe coldness and blunt cruelty. This morning, Maddie was remembering the soft parts. Robert Abel taught Shakespeare at Southern Utah University, an inspiring smaller campus in Cedar City that was home to the Tony Award-winning Utah Shakespearean Festival. The Shakespearean Festival was one of the largest tourist attractions in Southern Utah, at least one of the largest man-made ones, and although it was less than three months in duration, was responsible for some 75% of the tourism dollars in that county. Everyone loved the festival. The townspeople flocked to the free green shows out on the lawn each night before the performances. And they saved for new trucks with the money they got from big tippers who came in from Las Vegas and Salt Lake City to see the remarkable performances. The college loved the festival because it brought them dedicated young liberal arts majors from all over the world. And the actors and stage directors, prop builders, and every other artisan who came to Cedar City to practice their craft loved the festival because it was perfection. It was exacting without being pretentious. It was pure in its love of the metaphor. It served up lattes and espressos along with bottles of water and good chocolate. It was two plays per day, six days a week, so that a patron could have her fill between a Thursday and a Sunday and go home completely satiated. Robert, while he loved Shakespeare and knew him more than most, could not claim the festival as his own. He did not create it, though he had often wished he had. He knew his jealousy of the founder was not attractive, especially considering the creator was a wholly charming and irresistible man who Robert and most everyone else genuinely liked. But Shakespeare was his specialty, his life, his passion. In his more generous moments, he only mildly resented being on the outside of something he should so obviously have occupied the middle of. Plus, he was grateful for the students who filled his classes, hoping to understand the nuance of the bard enough to one day be cast in a production. It was in one of those classes that Robert had met the barefaced young blonde, Madeline Ruth Johnson, Shakespeare 101. 
Forty students sat as attentively as recent high school graduates were capable of, each with a thick volume on their desktops. The complete works of William Shakespeare, attentively awaiting Professor Abel's first words. Death, once dead, there's no more dying then, he said only slightly above a whisper. After the cliched pregnant pause, he asked predictably, Who can tell me what Shakespeare meant by that? The silence that followed was a sensation Robert was quite used to and actually enjoyed more than he should have. It usually got briefer later in the semester when students became more familiar with the language, with him and with each other. But the first day was filled with silence, the smell of nervous sweat and greasy food, and an overall lack of preparation that would not be tolerated after that day. Robert had to keep himself from laughing. Might as well get it over with. The young woman who spoke those words did so without any bite in her voice. Excuse me? Robert said, looking more than a little stunned by the girl with the ponytail. Was that boredom or nonchalance on her face? Does it mean you might as well do it, get the worst over with? I mean, once you've died, once you've suffered the worst you can suffer, you've got nothing left to fear, right? There's no more dying then, she asked, summoning some humility in response to the question Robert had forgotten he asked. Why, yes it does, Miss... Johnson. Robert consulted his class list. Madeline Ruth Johnson. Maddie remembered their first kiss with a shiver that might have been regret. It was three years ago. Robert had seemed so nervous, so worried about the inappropriateness of a teacher-student relationship. Or maybe it was their age difference. Do you know how old I am? Robert asked with eyes wide, forgetting it was obvious. Maddie had asked to meet with him at the end of his office hours. She was 15 minutes late, but he had waited. Sorry I'm late, Professor Abel, she said breathlessly through shiny lips. No problem, Madeline. What did you want to see me about? Robert felt his heart pounding and went to loosen his tie before he remembered he wasn't wearing one. Shakespeare, she replied. Yes, he prodded her for more. Who was his muse? Alack, what poverty my muse brings forth, that having such a scope to show her pride, the argument all bare is of more worth than when it hath my added praise beside. I mean, was Shakespeare married? Did he ever have a crush on anyone? Are you married, Professor Abel? She had not taken a breath or the seat opposite his desk that he had gestured to. Maddie stood with her arms at her sides and the straps of her backpack wrinkling her light blue T-shirt. He started to answer her questions, then stood up and moved across the room to make tea. Yes, well, he mumbled as he headed toward the counter that held his haphazard collection of mugs and boxes of chamomile and Earl Grey. Maddie hadn't noticed the tea or the mugs behind her. She took his face in both hands with one liquid motion and kissed him softly on the lips. She had pictured kissing Professor Abel before that day in his office, but she never thought she would actually do it. It just happened. That's how she thought of it, as something that happened to her rather than something she reached out and did. In fact, sometimes, when she remembered it, it was him kissing her instead of the other way around. Later on the day it happened, when she was walking back through campus, she remembered wondering if Robert Abel had dated students regularly. Maybe she was just that semester's Juliet. 
She didn't think he was like that, but she didn't know. You never knew. The first time she took Robert home to meet her parents was two years earlier, Christmas of 1981. He was so nervous, he actually considered shaving his beard for the first time in 20 years. She told him he looked dignified with the beard. That had not convinced him that keeping it was a good idea, but he kept it anyway. He said he was afraid of what he might find underneath. Maddie's mother's name was Cookie Johnson. When people met her, they often asked what her real name was. She explained with a face that seemed tired of explaining that her given name was Cookie. She had not changed her last name from Johnson back to her maiden name of Connolly after she divorced ten years earlier, although she threatened to do so off and on. The name she had really wanted to change was her first name. Cookie did not fit her. She was stern and studious and thick without being plump. She was a woman just turned 60 who had perfected the expression of an older woman in her 20s. She did not color her hair, both on principle and as a result of her professed lack of money, so her formerly blonde hair was a dingy grayish color now. Cookie stood in the doorway wearing a t-shirt and mom jeans. She was immediately suspicious of Robert, eyeing him as only a mother would do, and in this case probably should have done. Maddie had not told her mother how old Robert was when she told him she was dating a guy named Robert Abel who she wanted to bring home for Christmas. When Cookie opened the door to the two of them standing on the porch, she wondered for a moment if Maddie had met someone on the road who needed to use the phone or something. This older man could not be Maddie's boyfriend. When Cookie finally realized he was, in fact, the boy Maddie had been telling her about, she let them in the house. She walked them into the small living room and sat down without offering them anything to drink. Maddie stared at her mother, willing her to talk first. Before she could start grilling Robert or Maddie or both, Robert got up and went to the piano that took up most of the space in the room. He sat down and played Ragtime, then Broadway. He played Mozart and bits of Rachmaninoff. He played until Cookie's face relaxed and Maddie started to smirk. Cookie loved the sound of music in her home. She let herself soften in the presence of it, and Robert played well, though with a little more enthusiasm than she cared for. When Robert met Maddie's father the next day, he smiled. Ike Johnson jumped in with an eager handshake. Robert, so good to meet you. Maddie stood still and accepted the hug her father offered. Ike was the same age as his ex-wife, but looked much younger. He looked Robert's age, 40-something, with a tall, lean frame and a youthful face. His expression was open, interested, with just a hint of sadness around the mouth. His hair was graying, too, but in combination with his boyish face, it didn't seem to age him. He wore a thick shirt over a gray T-shirt and blue jeans with a belt. The jeans were loose, like maybe he had lost weight recently. When Robert thanked Mr. Johnson for his hospitality, Ike laughed and said, "'Please, call me Ike.' He asked a lot of questions about Robert's work, wanted to know about his classes and his ex-wives, to which Maddie snapped, "'What's the big deal, Dad? It's not like you didn't get divorced.' Ike looked back to Robert. "'I'm sorry. Am I asking too many personal questions?' Ike was a patient man and became accustomed long ago to Maddie's jabs. 
When Ike left the room to refill their water glasses, Robert walked over to the fireplace mantel and looked at the pictures. There were eleven well-dusted frames in various sizes, all black. There was one of Maddie when she was a little girl. She was smiling with missing teeth and a blue headband in her hair. There was Maddie with her father, both standing in bright orange vests with hunting rifles. Maddie was surprised her father still kept that one out. "'Who's that?' Robert turned to ask Maddie, gesturing to the picture of Ike with his arm around a pretty blonde woman with a huge smile and Marie Osmond teeth. "'That's my stepmom.'